Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's specialty crop growers can breathe a bit easier. More of the Golden State's unique commodities have been added to the USDA's Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Those mysterious seeds from China that were received by unsuspecting homeowners here in the U.S.? Well, there's still a lot we don't know, but so far it appears to be a benign threat. We have the details. And we talk about controlling summertime weeds in farmland and pasture land here in California, especially one of the nastiest weeds, puncture vine. All that, crop reports, a look ahead at the week's weather, and a lot more. It's all on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. As farmers and ranchers continue to struggle during the pandemic, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced Tuesday it's made more crops and commodities eligible for relief under the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Farmers of 42 new fruit, vegetable, and nut crops may now apply, along with producers of cut flowers and nursery crops, farmed fish, and other products that are grown widely here in California. The USDA Stephanie Ho has more about that expanded Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. USDA has again identified additional commodities that are eligible for payments under the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. We approached it from a NOFA process, Notice of Funds Availability, and that was an opportunity for the public to submit data to verify that additional commodities were impacted. That was Farm Service Agency Administrator Richard Fordyce. Similar to an earlier announcement in July of additional eligible commodities, many of those added to the list this time also included specialty crops. A complete list can be found online. Farmers.gov slash CFAP will be a great resource for folks to look at. It'll have the added commodities listed on there. And then also it'll have some instructions and some more information about how a producer can apply. The deadline to apply for the program has been extended until September 11th, 2020. Meanwhile, producers with approved applications will receive their final payments. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Department of Agriculture Tuesday extended the deadline for farmers to apply for the coronavirus food assistance program to September 11th. 28 farm groups, including the American Farm Bureau Federation, requested the deadline extension in a letter to the USDA last week. AFBF Chief Economist John Newton says data from the Department of Agriculture shows about half the funding is still available. Through the first eight to nine weeks, we've seen only about $7 billion of the estimated $15.4 billion go out to producers. And in the case of specialty crop producers, at this point, only about $300 million has been paid to those growers. So I think they need more time to engage with FSA, do a little bit more outreach so that farmers across the country know that this critical support's available. Data from USDA shows the current farmer participation rate for CFAP is roughly 25%. Newton says the availability of aid doesn't mean the needs of all farmers have been met. So we know there are more producers out there, especially some of our smaller specialty crop producers. We need to make sure that they know these programs are available. When you dive into the specialty crops, two weeks ago, only about 1% of the payments for carrots had gone out the door. Apple payments were standing around 10%. So there's significantly more funding available to help specialty crop producers impacted by coronavirus. USDA also expanded the number of covered commodities included in CFAP. Among the additions are dozens of specialty crops, aquaculture, and nursery crops, and cut flowers. 
Michael Clements, Washington. Citrus greening disease, HLB, is creeping closer to California's commercial citrus orchards. An Asian citrus psyllid was confirmed positive for carrying that bacteria that causes HLB. And it was found in a commercial citrus grove in the Woodcrest area of Riverside County. While a positive ACP detection in a commercial grove is cause for serious concern, as of today, HLB has not been detected in any of California's commercial groves. That said, it's more crucial than ever to stop the disease from spreading by eradicating the Asian citrus psyllid in commercial groves. But there is good news on the front to battle HLB. University of California scientists have described progress in possibly counteracting the citrus greening disease. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that UC Riverside researchers say they created models of the bacterium that causes HLB, which could help manage it. You may recall we reported earlier about another UC Riverside team that announced progress on a treatment using Australian finger limes. In his briefing Wednesday on the new USDA crop production report, we heard Lance Honig with USDA Statistics Service use this word a lot. Record, 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 over and over. And many times the record referred to record yields, not necessarily record production, but in some cases both. Corn, for example. 181.8 bushels per acre, the highest yield on record. Our production forecast at 15.3 billion bushels, a record high. USDA also looking for record high yields for soybeans, cotton, and several other crops. One possible result. Big supplies weighing on prices for sure. USDA's Outlook Board Chairman Mark Jaganowski, and yes, USDA has cut its average price forecasts for several crops. New crop corn looking for a price half a dollar lower than this past season's crop at 310 a bushel. The lowest season average price since the 2006-2007 crop year. Expect price drops also for crops like wheat, soybeans, rice, and cotton. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The coronavirus pandemic is bad news for California's mushroom growers. Mushroom farmers around the state say they've reduced production as the pandemic has cut demand from restaurants and other food service customers. The California Farm Bureau reports that shipments had hit record highs late last year before customers began cutting orders as restaurants closed or reduced business. Several mushroom farmers say they've cut volume as much as 30% to adjust for the seesaw markets. California, by the way, ranks second in the nation in mushroom production. The Agriculture Department's annual look at ag land values and cash rents nationwide produced some interesting news for 2020. Deputy Chief Economist Cindy Nickerson says at first glance of the recent Agricultural Land Values Report, it was the same news for this year as it was for 2019 by the numbers. In 2020, the average farm real estate values, which includes both land and buildings, stayed perfectly constant with 2019 at $3,160 on average per acre. In terms of cropland, on a national basis, again, it was constant, valued at $4,100 per acre on average, and pasture land remained constant at $1,400 an acre nationally. That nationwide reflection might be a surprise to some, yet as Nickerson explains. Farmland values are an asset that incorporates the ability of the land to earn rents far into the future. So it's not the type of barometer that's going to change on a day-to-day or a week-to-week basis, as prices would, for example, prices for commodities. 
where there is year-over-year -year variation in ag land values is by region. We did see per acre values increase almost 4% in the southern plains region, and that was driven by an over 5% increase in cropland values in Texas. We did see some percentage changes that were greater if we drilled down to the state level with respect to cropland. We had several states whose cropland values changed by more than 2%. In almost all cases, the changes greater than 2% were increases. Pastureland, regionally, we saw some differences. Turning to trends in agricultural cash rents from the previous year. Nationally, the cropland cash rent averages held steady at about $139 per acre. However, regarding year-over-year -year comparisons regarding cash rents for both irrigated and non-irrigated acres. In 2019, cropland values on irrigated farmland were $220 per acre, and it dropped to $216, which is more in line with the values in 2018. Non-irrigated cropland followed a similar pattern and only dropped a dollar on a national level from $127 per acre in 2019 down to $126 per acre in 2020. One category showing no change from 2019, cash rents for pasture land, remaining at $13 an acre. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Taking a look at the weather for the week ahead for the southern Sacramento and northern San Joaquin Valleys, it's going to be hot with highs reaching 108 on Tuesday, 107 on Wednesday, upper 90s on the 20th, that's Thursday, Friday and Saturday near 100 degrees, and then cooling a bit Sunday and Monday, the 23rd and 24th, down to the mid-90s. Overnight lows, not very low, Low to mid-70s to start off the week and then cooling to the upper 60s for the balance of the week. But there is a happy note. The AccuWeather long-range forecast now calling for showers in our area on October 5th and 6th. Here's this week's California crop report. In Tulare County, harvested fields were being disked and planted for silage or other forage crops. Silage corn continues to grow at a steady rate with an increase in irrigation. Alfalfa is maturing and is being harvested. Bean fields continue to flower. Cotton plants were blooming and underwent weed control. In the Sacramento Valley, rice is progressing well as warmer nights were contributing to crop maturity. Sunflower and safflowers were being harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being irrigated. Pear and gala apple harvests are well underway. Grape vineyards are being thinned. Select table grape varieties, nectarines, plums, peaches, pluots, and apricots are being harvested. Late navel and Valencia orange harvests steadily progressed. Persimmons, pomegranates, and kiwis are maturing. The olive orchard bloom and pruning continues. Orchards were irrigated and cleaned in preparation for upcoming harvests. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachios continue to develop. Almond harvest began in the Sacramento Valley. In Tulare County, eggplant, peppers, sweet corn, yellow squash, zucchini, and tomatoes continue to mature and be harvested. In Calusa, Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo counties, the tomato harvest continues with some reports of short interruptions in flow due to weather conditions. Artichokes, Brussels sprouts, and squash, they're progressing well in San Mateo County. Irrigated pasture is reported to be in good to excellent condition. Foothill rangeland and non-irrigated pastures, though, are rated to be in fair to poor condition. Cattle and sheep are grazing on retired cropland as well as in harvested grain fields. Cattle supplemental feeding continues. Bees were active in squash, alfalfa for seed, and melon fields.
Don't forget the KSTE Farm Hour is available on your schedule. You can listen to it live, of course, at 6.50 on the AM dial here in Northern California or stream it live via the iHeartRadio app. And, of course, the KSTE Farm Hour is available as a podcast. Download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, and that includes the iHeartRadio app, Apple Music, and Google Play. And the mystery of the seed packets from China continues. But authorities say they do have some more answers as to the types of seeds and scope of their reach, but they still haven't identified who's responsible or their intentions. The Capitol Press reports the agency said it has not identified any seeds carrying pest or diseases, but still advises residents to take precautions. Most of the seeds showed up in white packages, though some were yellow. The majority were marked China Post, but some had labels from other countries, including Uzbekistan, the Solomon Islands, and Kyrgyzstan. Although USDA has yet to analyze all of the samples, it has identified some of the seeds in those packets as being rose, cabbage, rosemary, morning glory, mustard, cosmos, basil, radish, zinnia, mung beans, cucurbit seeds, and juniper seeds in those packets. With more, here's the USDA's Gary Crawford. Who in China has been sending thousands of packets of free and unsolicited garden seeds to people in the U.S. and other countries, and why? Are these seeds themselves possible invasive plants or weeds, or are they carrying problematic pests or diseases we don't have in the U.S.? Well, on that last question, USDA experts have been checking over some of those seeds. Have they found anything ominous? No, we have not, really. But Osama El Lisi with the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service says they've only been able to check a small percentage of the thousands and thousands of seed packets that have been delivered. Meanwhile, he says, USDA officials are working with their counterparts in China to figure out who's actually sending those shipments and more importantly, stop future shipments. USDA also working with customs and border officials in the U.S. to try to intercept any future packages being shipped to the United States. He says if you've got one of these uh, packets, don't plant the seeds, seal it up, send it to your State Department of Agriculture. The next question is, how do we stop future shipments from arriving to the U.S.? Osama El Lissi with the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service says that's being addressed on a couple of fronts. First, USDA's counterparts in China, they're helping to identify the actual senders of these packets. El Lissi says we do know the names of the companies. But we don't know the background information about these companies, and that's why we're working with our counterparts in China to follow up on some of these senders. The Chinese Postal Service also cooperating, plus... We've been working with the primary e-commerce companies to uh, use their own systems in stopping future shipments to the United States. The concern is that those seeds might be invasive species we don't have here or might carry pests and diseases that could harm U.S. agriculture and the environment. If you are among the thousands of Americans who have received packets of seeds shipped to you from China, seeds you didn't order, what should you do with them? Well, officials say one thing you should not do with them is plant them. They could be invasive species that we don't have here. They might carry pests or diseases that could harm U.S. agriculture or the environment. Beyond not planting those seeds... I think the most important thing is to report unsolicited seeds to the USDA. 
and send those seeds to the USDA. This from Osama El Lissi with the Ag Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, APHIS for short. He says the thing to do is to go online to this website. Here we go, aphis.usda.gov. That's aphis, A-P-H-I-S, dot U-S-D-A dot gov. You'll find instructions there on how to report those seeds, and you'll find... Also a list of locations where they can send these seed shipments so our partners and pathologists can evaluate them. Again, that website, aphis.usda.gov. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. U.S. farmers could have a busy harvest ahead this year. Shelby Myers, economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation, says several crops could expect record yields. The latest USDA report showed an estimated record yields for corn, cotton, and soybeans. When combined with the previously reported planting expectations, the U.S. is on track to produce its largest corn and soybean crop on record and the largest cotton crop since 2007. But Myers says those record high yields might not translate to more money in farmers' pockets. With the continued demand adjustments occurring as a result of COVID-19 and estimated record production of the current crop, USDA lowered the average farm price in the latest report for corn and soybeans and held the price of cotton unchanged. If supply and demand conditions persist towards supply heavily outweighing demand, there could be further pressure on those crop prices to go even lower. A recent derecho storm system whipped through a large area, and Myers says those storms will likely affect the final crop numbers. The recent storms are devastating for a number of reasons, and as cleanup is underway, the crop damage continues to be assessed. Looking ahead, these storms could have an impact on the supply of crops by scaling back the amount of total crop that U.S. produces this year. While this could alleviate some downward pressure on prices, it does not replace the destruction of crops many farmers are facing today. Chad Smith, Washington. Alternative proteins. What does that mean to you? Something plant-based, something from a lab, something that's derived from... Well, Christy McCracken of Rabble Research, where does it come from? My kids would probably call this bugs. And McCracken, speaking at this year's USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum, says even with alternative protein still making up a fraction of the total U.S. protein market, the interest in such products among consumers is growing. But perhaps not why you would think. Sure, reasons like health, animal welfare, and sustainability in consumers' minds might come into play. Yet there is also this theory. Were consumers looking for new protein options? Are they just getting a little bored with what we have today? She says that makes sense, especially in the younger generations like millennials and Gen Z, whose expanding palates are trying proteins like seafoods, lamb, and bison, and those plant offerings termed impossible and beyond. An example of millennial protein consumption habits? Protein bars actually ranked as high as pork and seafood as an ideal protein source. McCracken, however, says from a demographic standpoint, it goes beyond these groups. Three quarters of all consumers would choose an alternative protein source on a pretty regular basis. So it's not just Gen Z and millennials here. Perhaps another reason why the interest in alternative proteins has been building in recent years is a lack of education about proteins in general, especially when it comes to meat. As McCracken illustrates through a 2019 study conducted by Rabobank, Stanford University, and the North American Meat Institute. Over half, in fact, didn't even know that chicken and pork were high protein sources, which is exceptionally concerning. And it's not going to get a lot better as people are moving away from the farm. Now, while the health benefits of current plant-based 
alternative proteins have been the subject of debate. One thing McCracken says should be noted going forward. The next generation of products, and there's a lot, are going to be healthier. All of these companies are working on improvements, and they're able to do that because it is, by definition, a product that includes a lot of ingredients that they can change. And yes, investment into alternative protein research is also expanding, especially in the private sector. For example, blended product, an animal-plant hybrid food offering. The Kraken says it's not just economics, though, that has both private and public research labs looking at alternative proteins. There is a sound argument that we're going to need a lot of protein going forward. Global populations are increasing and income growth is going to require more protein to be produced with the same or fewer resources. With the thought that both meat and alternative protein will need to be produced in ample quantities to meet this demand. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Any conversation with organic farmers eventually turns to one subject. Weeds. A lot of weed seed predation happens. So we keep the weeds high. Having a bunch of weeds. There's more plants, whether they're weeds or not. A single weed can produce more than 10 million seeds. So if they're not dealt with in time, they can present farmers with challenges for years to come. But instead of using chemical herbicides, organic farmers can work with the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service to implement a variety of innovative practices that suppress weeds while continuing to build soil health. Cover crops are an effective tool for suppressing weeds, and they can work in three ways. When alive, they effectively outcompete weeds for water, nutrients, and sunlight. As green mulch, they physically prevent the germination of weed seed by preventing access to light and warmer temperatures. Farmers can also use a variety of plastic or paper mulches. These are installed at the beginning of the growing season and come in colors that can directly impact the development of individual crops. Finally, when certain legume, cereal, or brassica cover crops decompose, they produce natural herbicides that can suppress weed seed while sequestering carbon. Using the area between rows to grow additional crops, like growing flowers between rows of berries, is also an effective means to suppress weeds. On open fields, Organic farmers can use minimum tillage practices and a variety of tools for mechanical weeding. Farmers even use devices like flamers. These eradicate weeds before they have time to mature and go to seed. And advances in organic no-till with tools like the roller crimper help organic producers reduce soil disturbances in annual crop rotations. Another valuable tool is a nutrient management plan to help farmers with right source, rate, time, and applications to give crops a growth advantage over weeds. The targeted livestock grazing of cattle, sheep, and goats also offer additional tools for suppressing weed growth. And when all else fails, farmers can and do use the oldest form of weed control. They weed by hand. To learn more about how NRCS can help organic farmers suppress weeds using cover crops, mulch, nutrient management, 
no-till farming, and biological weed control, contact your local NRCS office where they can help you help your land organically. For more information, visit the website nrcs.usda.gov organic. And if you're doing intercropping, don't forget the insectary plants. These are plants that attract beneficial insects like ladybugs that biologically control pests. Also, companion planting to draw pests away from crops. Installing nesting sites such as bat and owl boxes can help manage pests. Cover crops naturally break the cycle of soil-borne diseases as well as some soil-dwelling insects while increasing the soil's organic matter. Recently at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, I asked the question, which weed vexes you the most? Well, apparently I poked the bear with that query. Answers came in fast and furious. Replies are still coming in. And probably the reason for all the ferocity right now against weeds can be attributed to the record rains of May, which are now germinating long dormant weed seeds on everyone's property. Well, let's talk about the runners-up first in this little informal survey. They included everybody's favorites, such as spurge, field bindweed, star thistle, nutsedge, Bermuda grass, Johnson grass, and catchweed bedstraw. But the overwhelming numbers of vote and angry comments were directed at puncture vine, also known as goathead. It's a summer annual weed that occupies disturbed, compacted soils on roadsides, orchards, dirt walkways, vineyards, and if you ride a bike, you know how prevalent they are on mountain bike trails in the summertime. And my next guest doesn't like this weed either. She calls it one wicked weed. We're talking with farm advisor Rachel Long, based at the Cooperative Extension Office in Woodland. And Rachel, uh, we're, we're approaching puncture vine season right now. That's right. And uh, so uh, puncture vine is actually a uh, late germinating uh, weed. It's a summer weed. And and it's really favored by uh, late spring rains, like the uh, rains that we had over Memorial Day weekend that dropped about three inches of rain and just really favored the uh, germination of this weed everywhere. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, of course, everybody's familiar with the seed head. If you if you step on one, you'll remember puncture vine forever. But there's a lot of toxicity involved with puncture vine, especially with sheep and cattle. Right, that uh, that puncture vine is a, is a really uh, a problematic weed. That you know, if it gets in like feed, I mean, it can really yeah, in the in the like alfalfa, for example, and uh, and the sheep graze that. It can just really be incredibly uh, painful and uh, and a problem for uh, for livestock. And I do believe that uh, farmers and ranchers are have the recommendation not to graze their livestock on fields where there is puncture vine. Oh, right, right, because it is uh, it, it is a, such a problematic weed, and it and it gets caught up also in their fur, uh, like as to the wool in uh, in sheep, and uh, and it just is a, is a really problematic plant for uh, for livestock raisers. I guess one reason why puncture vine is so nasty, it, it kind of disguises itself because it's so low growing, and uh, well, you describe the uh, the life cycle of of puncture vine. So, so puncture vine, it's an annual plant, and uh, and it actually grows from a single taproot. So it's a yeah, it just can really get a lot of water deep, uh, deep in the in the uh, ground, and uh, and then it um, it produces these little uh, leaflets, and uh, um, and then it creeps uh, right low to the ground and has really pretty yellow flowers. But don't be fooled um, because it is a really a really noxious plant and. Uh, and the plants will produce anywhere, you know, from 200 to say 5,000 seeds uh, <laughs> per plant. 
and uh, and then after they uh, you know in the fall say the uh, the plant will die back um, but uh, but the seeds uh, remain viable for about three to five years in in the soil so uh, so it is an annual and then those seeds um, will germinate the following year. Are those yellow flowers most noticeable in the morning hours? Yeah, they they seem to be more open in the morning and uh, um, and just you know a bright yellow color and uh, and 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 the leaves you know are so distinctive. They look like sort of like a um, you know they've got like little little tiny uh, leaflets and so it just seems to be a pretty vibrant green color. But you still it's pretty cryptic. You know it can kind of blend in with other plants. So you really have to do look you have to look for it in order for it to uh, to see it. It seems to blend in pretty well with the uh, with other plants one telltale sign of that leaf is the fact that on the leaflets those little leaflets are opposite as opposed to alternate i've been seeing a lot of creeping right. weeds right now but they're alternate uh-huh. right exactly and uh, yeah, and the and the flowers are tiny they're only about a uh, half inch wide but the big thing is is that it'll have yellow flowers and it's just a really low growing plant that just spreads out you know, it can be uh, it can be anywhere from you know two to five feet in diameter, and it just creeps along the ground. It doesn't really grow up that much. How long does it take for those flowers to set seed? Oh, you know, that seems like really, really quick. That's the thing about this plant is it seems like it could only be like you know four inches, you know, uh, in diameter, and it will already have uh, set some seed. So, so it just um, grows really fast. Is it? Excuse me, and set seeds very quickly. Is it one set of uh, growth, or does it constantly uh, germinate throughout the summer? It it will constantly germinate throughout the summer. It just seems like it just grows and grows, and it can get up to be, you know, as I say, about five feet wide, and it just continually produces flowers and sets seeds. And I guess, too, that uh, eating the leaves uh, can be problematic for livestock as well because of the content of the leaves. Right, you know, it's just not, it's not a, a, a good plant at all in terms of uh, really, you know, bad for livestock, uh, the plant itself, and then the seeds, of course, are really just incredibly noxious and wicked. And this reminds me a lot of the brown marmorated stink bug spread in Sacramento mm-hmm. County, where they found out it was being spread by cars of the BMSB hiding in bumpers and being distributed uh, throughout the Delta area a few years ago. And when the case of puncture vine, it could be your, mm-hmm. your farm vehicles, your car, uh, your wheelbarrow moving those spiny seeds to other parts of the property. Right. I think that the the best way that they seem to spread around everywhere is just by attaching to uh, you know, to, to tires, and uh, and then it just just goes spreads everywhere, and uh, and so you know just really really watch and just uh, just be very vigilant about looking and seeing if you have any uh, puncture vine in the area. Oftentimes, what happens is you pull off of roadsides, and uh, and there could just be a plant right there, and that you don't even notice, and then. The seeds have little thorns in them, and they get stuck in the tires, and then and then get uh, moved around the counties and the state that way. What is the best long-term control for puncture vine? So the best way to control puncture vine is just to get rid of the plant. What's best is just basically just to hoe it, um, pick it up, put it in a garbage bag, and take it away and throw it in in the garbage or a burn pile. And because uh, seeds only last, you know, maybe about three, could be up to five years in the soil. So if you're taking the uh, picking up the plant and just getting rid of it, then you're getting rid of that uh, the source of the seed. And uh, you don't want to just like uh, like leave the plant right there. So you don't want to hoe it or say spray it with Roundup and leave the plant there because of the plant. As the plant is dying or senescing, then the uh, the seeds can still continue to mature 
And so, um, so you still have that seed out there. So make sure to pick that plant up, stick it in the garbage bag and toss it away. Don't leave it out there because it will have seed that yeah. can continue to mature. I would think also that uh, shallow cultivation, uh, maybe an inch below the soil line is a good way to help remove it, but you wouldn't want to rototill it because you may be bearing some of those seeds. Exactly. So the uh, shallow cultivation, you know, just to get rid of plants before they set seed. And you just have to sometimes be uh, really vigilant about that and just, you know, just hoeing shallow cultivation and, uh, you know, to get rid of those uh, those young seedlings. And uh, but again, if you bury the seed really deep, you know, that it can stay there for a long time and be viable for a long time. So um, so the best thing to do is just to be on it. And just, you know, if you do have a lot of puncture vine around your your home or in your farm or your garden, then just just be on it and uh, don't let it uh, mature and go to seed. And so just keep on watching for it and pulling it. And eventually you will get rid of it. It's not like some seed that's, you know, viable in the soil for like a hundred years. You know, this thing you can, you can get rid of it as long as you keep on uh, like culling it or just, you know, pulling up those plants and getting rid of the whole plant. I would think mowing wouldn't be very effective. Oh, no, you know, because it's uh, the plant is so low growing that uh, that I'm just not even sure that you could pick up much in terms of mowing at all. So, no, so that wouldn't work because you just couldn't get low enough. But there is good news. There are chemical controls and biocontrols to thwart puncture vine. So, you know, the big thing about puncture vine is that you got to get it before it uh, sets seed. And uh, so there are a number of uh, pre-emergent herbicides that can be used uh, to uh, to control the uh, puncture vine. But the problem with that is that those pre-emergent herbicides need about a half inch of rain in order to activate the uh, the chemical. So that can be a bit of a challenge, you know, because it needs water or you got to have a sprinkler to activate it, um, the herbicide or, or something you know, or rainfall. And when you get with these uh, late germinating uh, weeds that uh, that then, you know, you might not have that uh, that rainfall or water for activating it. So um, you can also use, you know, certainly uh, uh, Roundup or glyphosate uh, and uh, and some of the pre-emergent herbicides also have some uh, post-emergent activity. So you can you can you know use these these chemicals for uh, for uh, actually killing the plant. But again, you know, just killing the plant doesn't mean that you're killing the seeds. So the seeds, even if you spray them with Roundup, the seeds can still uh, remain viable. So that's why it's really important to either either just lightly harrow or or actually you know just go out and look for puncture vine. There tends to be hot spots. And uh, and so then you just concentrate in those areas and just pick up the plant and make sure to throw it away in the garbage. For homeowners, of course, glyphosate is registered for use. They could use that. But like Mm -hmm. you say, Mm -hmm. you need to pick up those seed burrs and you've got some interesting ways of gathering them. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, after you pull up the plant, the the seeds are actually uh, the same color as soil, you know, that brown and they just blend right in. And uh, and so sometimes, you know, people can use like an old, you know, piece of carpeting and lay it down and uh, on top, you know, with the uh, with the carpeting side on the ground and then pick up the seeds that way. Um, Sometimes I'll use a a rag and, uh, you know, to kind of uh, blot the ground to to pick up those uh, goat heads. Um, Other times, you know, sometimes I'll just sort of feel with my hand and then and then I can just, you know, then just feel the seeds underneath a plant and just pick them up and. uh, and again, then uh, then toss them away in the in the garbage can. And they're just you know you can feel them. You can you can just put your hand down on the ground and feel them and get rid of those as soon as possible. 
know, the, uh, not only are, is it bad for livestock, but, um, but it, it just is, it's also bad for like uh, almond or almond production too, because, you know, it just, it's hard to, uh, to clean um, out from the, uh, from the almond crop um, during, during harvest. And so it's just really important for not only for livestock, but also for, uh, for just, you know, orchard crop, nut crop production as well to, uh, to keep those, uh, those uh, goat heads out of the, uh, out of these orchards. And of course, household pets can get it caught in their fur or in their paws, and chances are they may uh, bring it back into the house where they might lick it out, and the next thing you know, uh-huh. you're stepping on it. <laughs> right. They're really incredibly uh, miserable, uh, uh, wicked weeds, and uh, definitely it's a really important, especially in years like this year where you do have those late spring rains, to really be vigilant and watch for the uh, for the puncture vine and and keep everyone safe, including including our pets and and also livestock from this uh, from this terrible weed. What sort of biocontrols are there for puncture vine? So you know that's a really good question. So actually, puncture vine is not native. So it came into uh, the United States, you know, back in the uh, early part of the uh, 1900s, and uh, and it very quickly spread uh, everywhere. And uh, but uh, then in the 1960s, actually, there was a weevil or a beetle. Uh, two types of beetles that are called weevils that were released into California, and uh, and one of these weevils actually feeds on the uh, on the seed, so it's a seed feeding weevil, and the other is a stem feeding weevil. So so these weevils will lay eggs into the uh, uh, into the seeds and also into the stems of the plants, and then they'll feed uh, on the on the plant and also on the seeds and kill them, and uh, and so these actually they're. The weevils actually do a good job. Uh, I wouldn't say they're 100%, but they really do a good job on keeping the, uh, helping to keep the uh, puncture vine suppressed. One of the issues is is that they, the weevils just don't do as well in uh, like in Northern California where it can get cold. So, so after a hard freeze, uh, for example, when we had a hard freeze about two years ago, that, uh, that the weevils will die off. And uh, and then it just then puncture vine if it's a good year will will um, start building up again. Again, a good year means late spring rains, and so then the puncture vine will start building up again, and then it takes a while for the weevils to catch up to suppress it. So these weevils are everywhere, and uh, um, but just in some years after a hard frost they'll they'll be knocked back, and then it just takes them a while to build up again. And, uh, and so you can, like, sometimes if you can look at a plant, a puncture vine plant or a seed, and if you see a little hole in there, then that means the weevil is active. So CDFA, the California Department of Food and Agriculture, is aware of, uh, you know, these weevils, and they still sometimes do releases, or they're, they're actually monitoring for the presence of these, uh, these weevils. So it's not something that we would go out and buy, because they're just already uh, all over the place. And uh, and again, it's just when uh, in some years when you have a frost that those adults uh, die back and uh, and that takes a while for them to build up again. You mentioned in the summer 2019 issue of Sacramento Valley Pest Notes that the adults of both species of weevils overwinter in plant debris. Is there, a, if you will, a good bug hotel that you could uh, plant to encourage their population? You know, the, uh, um, the weevils actually are very, very host specific to, uh, to puncture vine. And so the adults will kind of, they'll spend the winter sort of in just, you know, just like, um, I don't know, cracks or crevices or any sort of protected areas. And, uh, and so they, uh, there's not really a habitat that you can plant uh, for these weevils because they just are so host specific to puncture vine. 
which is actually good. So it means that, you know, that uh, that they're going to be their population is just highly dependent upon the uh, upon the presence of puncture vine. So so there's not really any alternative. But then the good news is, is that, you know, the weevils won't move on to onto really any other plants or cause damage to any crop plants. So that's a, that's a benefit in terms of that. They're just very specific to the puncture vine. Before I wrap this up, is there anything you want to add? This is a, uh, a year when you're likely to see puncture vine out there. So just, you know, keep an eye out for it and uh, help protect all of us from this uh, really uh, noxious, wicked weed. Call it puncture vine, call it goat head. Most of us just say, ouch, when we step on it or handle it. But now is the time to control it. We've been talking with Rachel Long, Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. Thanks for the goat head advice, Rachel. Oh, you're welcome. Stay safe. Thank you. Small-scale meat processors make up the bulk of meat processing establishments in this country, and USDA has opportunities to help them. More than 90 percent, or about 5,200, of the slaughter and processing establishments regulated by FSIS are considered small or very small. That was Mindy Brashears, Undersecretary for Food Safety. She recently participated in a webinar with Deputy Undersecretary for Rural Development, Betty Brand. And it truly is a pleasure to collaborate with our sister mission area here at USDA to talk to you today about the resources for small-scale meat processors. Rural development helps with loans and grants. If you're a lender and if a small meat producer or processor comes to you for help, we want you to do business with them. An entire recording of the webinar is available online, either at the Rural Development or FSIS websites. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com.